0: Well, hey, uh, remain standing as you grab your copy of God's Word this morning and flip to the book of Colossians. Colossians is where we'll be this morning. Colossians chapter 4. If you're new with us here at the Parks Church, I want to especially welcome you. And we're standing, if you're new, the reason we're standing is we're standing in honor of reading God's word this morning. And so if you don't have a copy of God's word, it'll be on the the screen behind me. Colossians chapter 4, we will read uh, verses 2 through 6 for our text this morning. This is what it says. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So we are in a uh, quick little four-week study on the church and particularly looking at uh, different places in Scripture uh, around the sent nature of God's people. That when God redeems us and he places us into a community of faith, it is not that we are just so internally focused, right? But it's that he sends us out also among one another. But last week we looked at how one of the key marks of the church and how people, the outside, the watching world will know that we're followers of God is John 13, 34 and 35 is by our love for one another. So we, we, we talked through this understanding of how when God saves us and redeems us, one of our marks that we must carry is our love for other brothers and sisters within the body of Christ. And if we miss on that one, we might as well not even talk about week two, which is this week. And so that's why we started there with the sin nature of the church being to one another and loving each other well. And the whole premise of uh, this series really comes from uh, Romans chapter 10. And, and Jim, if you have that, put it, put it up here. In all of the different hows in Romans chapter 10, and it says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, right? If you've experienced uh, the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, it's because you called upon him, right, in your time of understanding your need that you couldn't, uh, you couldn't stack up to God, you couldn't have a relationship with God apart from faith in Jesus, Then the hows begin in verse 14, how then will they call on him on whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard, and how are they to hear without someone preaching, and how are they to preach unless they are what? Sent, that's right, sent. As it is written, meaning in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, or the gospel. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so it explains how faith happens within a person. It comes by hearing the gospel, hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. But when we hear the good news of Jesus Christ and it transforms our lives, we then go into a posture of understanding God's a missional God, meaning he is a God who sends his people out for his glory. Right? How will they hear if we don't preach? How will they preach if they are not sent? Right? And so, when we think of that idea of sending or sent, I would guess most of us as Christians who have walked with Jesus for any amount of time, probably your immediate thought was what we'll talk about this week. It wasn't week one being sent to one another, and I thought that's why it's really important to to key in there. But we have to understand that we have a responsibility as a church, as God's people, for people to hear and understand the gospel. We have a responsibility to take the gospel from us to the watching world, to those who don't know. Again, so week one, we started with each other. Now we're talking about being a sent people to those who don't know Jesus, those who don't know Christ. Now, let me, uh, let me begin by saying this. You and I, we don't save anyone. Romans 10 tells us that, Right? A person's salvation in Jesus Christ, in fact, does not even depend on you. God is mighty to save. The scriptures tell us that salvation belongs to the Lord and the Lord alone. And all that, we can take a deep breath and sigh of relief. However, here's what I want to make a point on. That accurate theology, right, has given some of you an inaccurate, practical theology of not sharing your faith with those around you. Let, Let me say that again. The accurate theology of going, listen, I can't save anyone. The Lord alone, salvation belongs to the Lord alone, has given you, that accurate theology has given you an inaccurate functional or practical theology where you don't share your faith with anyone because you're like, God does it. God's the one who saves, so he's going to say whether I participate or not, which is true, however, it makes you walking in disobedience. To say or to believe the right things is only the first step or one step. It's incomplete until we do the next right thing or the obedient thing, right? And in our church, we're, we're working. If I'm honest with you, remember, this is a, this is a, a, a series on, about us a little bit, right? Here internally, we're having some family meetings, right? This is a muscle we're working out. I believe that our church, we know the right theology, we have the head knowledge, we can nod and we can identify even incorrect theology, but when it comes to practical or functional theology in our lives, we can be a little bit mistaken. We cannot see that accurate and that good and that robust theology work itself out into our feet. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, the the reality of evangelism working itself out as a community of faith, us, the Parks Church. And here's where I'm going to land, right? Somewhere between um, St. Francis of Assisi, right? Many of you know that quote that they gave, right? Uh, share the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. You've heard it. Well, here's the problem with that quote, right? To share the gospel, it's necessary to use words, right? And then on the other side, so we have on, on one side that, and then on the other side you have the, 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 the person with a bullhorn at the city square yelling, turn or burn, right? <laughs> Using all the words, but then just like in a row, wait, right? So you have those two extremes, and so somewhere I'm going to land uh, biblically right in the middle of those two, okay? And so I know I'm going to make some of you disgruntled by not going far enough, and others of you I'm going to make disgruntled by going too far, all right? Um, So I'll start with a quote by Timothy Keller, right? Let's just level set with him. He says, A church must be more deeply and practically committed to the deeds of compassion and social justice than traditional liberal churches, and more deeply and practically committed to evangelism and conversion than traditional fundamentalist churches. This kind of church is profoundly counterintuitive to American observers. It breaks their ability to categorize and dismiss it as liberal or conservative. Only this kind of church has any chance in the non-Christian West. I think he's spot on. A church that is committed to meeting the social needs of a community, however... A church that is also radically committed to seeing the lost saved and called from darkness, actually proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ with their lives, social justice right over here, and their lips. Now, there are few things in the Christian faith that give us hot sweats, like the idea of sharing our faith publicly. I realize that. However, in our church, I I love, and there are a handful of you, that have the gift of evangelism you don't just have a heart of, of, of an evangelist, you have the gift of evangelism. Meaning, there's not conversations I don't have with some of you who it's not in every conversation, it's, a, it's, it's about how you shared your faith with someone or you shared the gospel, you saw this person who didn't know Jesus come to faith in Jesus Christ. There are a handful of you in our, our church with, with that spe- specific gift. However, there is a mandate on all of us, whether we have the gift of evangelism or not, to share our faith to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I want to lead with this question and work to answer it from the text of Colossians. How do we, as a church, make the real Jesus known and unignorable in the world and culture around us? How do we, as the Parks Church, make the real, and and these words, listen, I'm very specific with these, the real Jesus The Jesus of the Bible, okay? Not a character of Jesus, not a palatable version of Jesus that's cool here in McKinney, Texas, but I'm talking about the real Jesus of the Bible, known and unignorable in the world and culture around us. I think this is what Paul is getting at here at the end of the book of Colossians with the local church or the local community of believers he's talking to. Now hear me, this is not an evangelism program. I'm not against those, okay? Uh, we have, some, in fact, some really good ones and practices here at our church, some of you in our church who lead those kind of programs, right? I'm not against those. I love what uh, D.L. Moody once said, somebody who was coming against him about the way he was doing evangelism, right? They were just talking to him about, hey, I don't I really like the way you do evangelism. And D.L. Moody looks back at them, he goes, I can tell that you don't like the way I do evangelism, but I like the way I do evangelism as opposed to the way you don't do evangelism, Right? <laughs> And so, like, it's real easy to knock those programs, it's real easy to talk against those type things, and and I understand it in in some extent, but let's think about it. Are we really sharing our faith? Are we really proactive in sharing our faith? the, The grace and mercy that we're here celebrating this morning. And so let's look at Colossians and how the Word of God would lead us toward that answer of how we're going to make the real Jesus known and unignorable in the culture around us. Uh, Verse 2, and and, and you'll want to keep your Bible open because I'm going to unpack nearly every phrase in this um, section of Scripture. The first thing that Paul says is this, continue steadfastly in prayer. Evangelism, sharing our faith with those who don't know Begins with prayer and continues in prayer. One of and maybe the most neglected and undervalued task in sharing our faith, evangelism if you will, is prayer. Is actually coming before God and calling upon God to save. Calling upon him to specifically meet people right where they are. That Paul starts with prayer and gives priority to prayer to this community of people who he's led through this book and this writing of Colossians. I love what Lewis Berry Chaffer says. He says uh, about evangelism or sharing your faith. He says, "First, we must speak to God about people before we speak to people about God." Is 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 that your lead? Is that how you approach sharing your faith, is that you fall on your knees first, is that you call upon God in prayer specifically for those people who don't know Jesus? And some of you go, Kyle, yes, that's, that's, that's what I have done, and in fact, for this certain person or this group of people, I have prayed for years, years on end. Maybe, maybe it's a, a child, maybe it's a family member or a spouse, and you say, Kyle, I prayed for five years. I prayed for a decade, prayed for 20 years, and I didn't see anything. God never answered. And I think that's why these words in verse 2, the words that Paul uses, are so important. It says the first two words continue steadfastly. Keep calling. Keep praying. Now listen, I understand how we can grow weary, and that's why we need, one, the body of Christ and the word of God to tell us, keep calling. Like Jesus in his parable with the persistent widow. Do you remember that parable? Where it's just like Jesus uses this picture of someone who keeps knocking who keeps asking, who keeps pleading, who keeps begging, the encouragement to you who have just lost endurance in calling upon the Lord to save, maybe that specific person or that group of people, listen, the word, the encouragement to you from the word of God this morning is keep praying. Don't lose heart. God in heaven is hearing you. He's moving. So what can the church do to reach those who are far from God? The first reaction and action of the church is this, to call upon God. Who's the one who saves? Let's let, our, uh, let's let our good theology roll here. Who is the one who saves? God is. Who's the one who opens the door for the conversation? Who's the one who does all of that? He is. So why are we not calling upon him? Why are we slow to do that? Why are we quick to go to strategy and not first to fall into prayer? The, most, the first and most important task in reaching those far from Jesus is this park's church. Prayer. Praying, Holy Spirit, help bring to our minds those who don't know Jesus. We're going to pray that way at the end of service today. And I pray that even through this talk and through this sermon, the Lord would begin to drop people on your mind and on your hearts. And some people who maybe are the hardest cases in your mind. People you think who are so far away from God. Praying for them specifically by name. Too hostile, too skeptical. And let's let's continue in Colossians. We're still talking under this, this banner of prayer. It says, being watchful in it, in what? In prayer with thanksgiving. So being watchful as we pray, as we call upon God, as we seek God for those who don't know him, it says, be watchful in your prayer. Here's what that means. Look for ways Jesus is already moving in the lives of those around you. Look for ways that Jesus is already stirring hearts that you come into conversation with. A softening. Maybe it's through a struggle. Maybe it's through a a, a success. I don't know. But here's where wrong thinking can creep in. When we look at places like Romans 10, we believe that God shows up when we show up. That That is the furthest thing from the truth, right? God's there working. God's there moving. And guess what you're doing? You're joining his work that he's been doing. You're joining him, and so that's why Paul's going, listen, watch for it. Watch for the different ways that God is moving in this person's heart, in this person's life, in this conversation. Be watchful as you pray. And listen, this is an active posture just as much as prayer is an active posture, seeing how God is already on the move. And here's what I've noticed about prayer, is that prayer is about the only way I am sensitive to how the Holy Spirit is actually doing this. Prayer is about the only way that I actually have an awareness while I will open my eyes and open my hearts to say, "There is something much bigger going on here. Lord, how do you want me to participate? If you're not in prayer, let me tell you you are most likely going to miss those moments, Because you didn't come before God and go, "God, soften my heart so I can participate. Soften my heart so I can join in what you're doing." And then it says, do it with thanksgiving. What does that mean? Like, well, I think we understand what this idea of thanksgiving is, right? But this is the idea of worship, okay? That you approach prayer, you approach um, those who don't know Jesus with a watchfulness. But there's also this thanksgiving that takes place in your heart where you're going, God, you are mighty to save. God, just as your grace has transformed me and moved in me, Lord, I'm thanking you for how you're going to move and how you're going to work in the lives of those around me. So we come with this thankfulness. We pray so that God is glorified. Some of you are going, well, what if God is the one who saves, if God's the one who does all this, why would we even need to pray? Because the scriptures tell us that God is glorified by and in answering prayers that we pray. So get this: God is glorified when we pray, and in our prayer we receive what we need. Right, So God gets what he deserves, his glory, and we get what we need by him meeting our needs. So we come to God with our inability, our inability to save, our inability to move hearts, our inability to open doors or change anything, and God shows us his infinite ability. You get that? That's what prayer is doing. And then Paul here, he goes uh, through these different things. Let's look at it in verse 3. He begins to make something a li- uh, this request a little bit more personal. In this context. He said at the same time. Pray also for us. Meaning the ministers of the gospel. Specifically there. That God may open to us a door for the word. To declare the mystery of Christ. On which I am in prison. Okay now. This prayer that Paul is asking for. From this local church. Is a prayer for a miracle. For God to do what only he can do. It's a prayer for success, right? When you think about success, you don't need to look at the world or the culture's definition of success. You need to look at the scripture's definition of success. And so Paul here says, listen, this is what success in prayer looks like. It doesn't look like me being free from prison. That's not what he's talking about. He looks like it and door opening so that he or the word of God, the mystery of Christ might be shared. That's what success looks like for Paul. And then he says, which I am in in prison. Now, The reality of suffering and persecution is on display here. Most of you will not end up in prison for your faith, for sharing the gospel. Some of you might, right? But we all will experience rejection of some kind if we are obedient to the mandate of Scripture to share our faith publicly. You will. Has that been experienced in your life? Has that been experienced as you have shared Christ? And then Paul says this as he goes on in verse 4, that I, Paul, may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. How I ought to speak. Paul's not asking them for what, and I'm going to get to this here in a little bit, but how. How I might bring the gospel, how I might share the gospel. So he deals with prayer. He asks prayer from them to him, and how he might share the gospel, the mystery of Christ. And then he, again, we're trying to answer the question, how will we make the real Jesus known and unignorable in the culture around us? He says, well, it begins with prayer and continues in prayer. And the second thing is this, is verses 5 and 6, that it looks like a community of people living compelling testimonies of the transformative grace of Jesus Christ. So it's not just prayer, but it's prayer coupled with our lives being lived as public witnesses or testimonies of the transformative grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. This is what he says in verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Live a compelling testimony of the grace that you profess, a life that reflects a, a profound reorientation in call of Jesus to his disciples that's actually observable by the watching world. And here's what makes it compelling, is that it actually shows a better way. It actually shows what the good life really is. It's compelling because it's a community that is actually loving one another. It's compelling because it actually shows what flourishing is all about. It does more than just say, hey, there's a better way with our lips. It actually demonstrates that better way. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that your lives are lived as living letters, as a testimony to be read by all. Not heard by all, but observed. So Paul says, are you calling upon God to save? Are you also living in a way that is consistent with the wisdom of God, and so verse five, let's just break that down. What does it mean to walk in wisdom? By the way, like, hey, that doesn't bother me. Like, I, I love life in the service, all right? Like, it's good, and so, verse five, look at it. It's all good. Walk in wisdom. What is wisdom? What is wisdom? And listen, I don't mean like your crackerjack box answer, right? And this is, where, this is where I think we could even give a deep theological, biblical, right answer. But does that definition translate to your feet in the actual way that you live? Right? Biblical wisdom is a life lived consistently with the word of God that is consistent with God's word and God's heart. And here's the difficult thing about living in life, and this is where wisdom kicks in, really. Is you go, Kyle, there are some situations in my life. Maybe you'd go, Kyle, there are many situations in my life where I am looking for like chapter and verse, and I can't find it. Anybody been there before? Right? Like, I've looked. Like, I did the little search on Google even, right? Bible verse for this situation. And so maybe you can find a theme or maybe you can find something like this. Here is why, once again, we need the community of faith, the community of faith, the local church and the wisdom that God gives so that we might understand his heart and live in light of his word and his heart. Live lives that are consistent based upon what we understand about God's character and his nature. That's what it means to live in wisdom toward outsiders. James 1.5, I'm so thankful for this verse, right? If, I don't have a life verse, but if I did, it would just be this one because of how often I use it, right? It says this, James 1.5, If any of you lack wisdom, which we're all like, that's me, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So back to prayer, if you lack wisdom, what do you do? Pray, okay? Don't You're like, oh, I get it, Kyle, okay? You call upon God. Lord, in this situation, I just don't know what to do. Father, I'm confused. I'm disoriented. What do I do? How, how do I live so that my life is a compelling testimony of your grace and your mercy? If any of you lack wisdom, God gives it. A one writer says uh, about God's missional heart and his nature through the church, he says, in Ephesians, Paul teaches that the manifold wisdom of God is made known through the church, us, even in heavenly places. Because of the church's missional role, God's wisdom needs to shape our lives both in the local fellowship and in our public witness. This is not a generic philosophical wisdom that is to transform us, but God's unique and often counterintuitive wisdom found in Christ. The wisdom of God is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You want to see wisdom embodied? Look no further than Jesus. He is wisdom. How do I orient my life around Jesus? He is the wisdom of God. So here I have a question for you. Does your life reflect the wisdom of God? I think about the early church, and they were a group of people who were so captured by the beauty and grace of Jesus that their entire lives were compellingly different than those around them. Right, is, is there, what's, what's, what's markedly different about your life because of your faith and trust in Jesus? 75 minutes you give on a Sunday morning? And that's not a small deal, that just can't be it, right? And Paul knows it can't be it because of what he continues in Colossians 4 with. He goes, you want, let's talk about wisdom, right, this big umbrella term, wisdom, because there's two areas of wisdom I want to point out. Your wisdom with your time and your wisdom with your talk. You think I'm just making these up? It's right here in Colossians. Look at it. So walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. The number one currency in all of McKinney is not money. It is time. The literal Greek translation of making the best use of time literally means this to buy up time, that we as God's people buy up the time. Now you're saying like, Wait a minute, what does that even mean, like buy it? Like are we cashing in some dollars so we can buy it? No, no, what it means is that you literally gobble it all up and you use every moment and see every moment as a holy opportunity to represent Jesus in the spaces and places he has put you, in your home, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your school, in your workplace, on your team, that you buy up every moment you have in that car, that you buy up every moment that you have on that soccer field, that you buy up every moment that you have in that classroom, for God's glory, to be his representation there. That's what wisdom looks like, that you don't squander any moment for God's glory. What would happen if we began to think about our time like that, our friends like that? Just look at, look at your schedule. And I know last week I asked you to reorient your schedule around Christ. Now I'm just asking you to look at those things and going, okay, do I squander those moments that are on my schedule? Do I squander dinner time? Something as ordinary as that, where we're sitting there as a family, or is that a divine opportunity where the Lord has placed you there to demonstrate Christ to your kids, to your spouse, the car ride where you're taking them from school to soccer as an opportunity. Verse six, making the best use of time let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. You're like, oh, my speech is salty, all right. (laughs) Not what I'm talking about, nor what Paul was talking about. But that it's gracious, that it's kind while simultaneously truthful. There's almost this sense of an uncompromising truth that Paul's saying, but that's delivered in a utterly gracious way. Is that how your vocabulary works, or is it sharp or profane, belligerent, gossipy? Howard Hendricks, a great prophet at Dallas Seminary, used to say, um, with that old quote, like, you can lead a horse to water, you know that quote, right? But you can't, want, you know, make him, make him drink, right? You know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. He said, but you can salt the oats, Right? What he meant by that was essentially what Paul is talking about in Colossians, where like there can be such a way of how you talk, how you interact with people, where people, when they get to the water, the living water of Jesus Christ, they're like, I want to drink of this. I want to drink deeply of this Jesus. But let me tell you that if our speech does not match our profession, if our life don't match our speech, let me tell you, there is an inconsistency, there is a hypocrisy that the watching world will sniff out. They will see it. They will be able to recognize it. And here's where I want to land with Paul's last but second time saying this in, chapter, or in, in verse 6. It says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. How you ought to answer. And this struck me so much this week. The word how used twice here in how we talk. Paul asked me, how do I answer a person? So, potentially, what we have here with Paul speaking about this twice, it could be potentially more important, not what we communicate, but how we communicate it. What might be more important to Paul in this is not just the articulation of the truths of the gospel, okay? Not talking about accepting heresy, but what is of at least equal importance to Paul is how he communicates the gospel through his words, I was reading something this week in highlighting this point. Jesus was asked 200 questions in the Gospels, roughly 200 questions, I think 187. He directly answered about eight of them. Okay? You're like, well, see, I knew Jesus was just trying to skirt the fact. No. With those 200 questions, he answered eight of them directly He asked 300 questions. Why? Because Jesus knew that the leading question was not really the question at play. Jesus knew, right, being the Savior and God of the universe, that there was something, there was a question under the question. And oftentimes it takes asking another question or another question to get to the real heart of what's going on. Oh, you're asking me about the Sabbath, but you're not really asking about the Sabbath. Oh, you want to know about this. You want to know about divorce. You want to know about these. This is the question you're asking me, but let me ask you a question. And Jesus asked them 300 questions in return to get what? To the heart. That's the how. That's, listen, I want to be curious in such a way to go, what are you really asking? What's the heart behind what you're really bringing before me? Because that's what I want the Holy Spirit to address, right? But we are so quick to take the bait, right? And go, I just got to give the answer. Here's the answer. Here's what it is. And there you go. Jesus did that eight times out of 200. Let's follow his lead, right? Because who embodies wisdom? Jesus. Again, back to Timothy Keller on evangelism. He says, bad evangelism says, I'm right, you're wrong, and I would love to tell you about it, right? (laughs) We've seen that one in play. Anything but compelling to a watching world. To those who don't know Jesus, who are wondering, who are searching, who are grasping. How will this church, and I pray that this church does, make the real Jesus known, and unignorable to a watching world around us? How will you and I in the spaces and places God has us as the scattered church make the real Jesus of the Bible known? And not just known, but so unavoidable, like, I've got to ask you. And they're not going to come and go, I've got to ask you about the Jesus that you believe. They're going to ask you about something that is compellingly different. That strikes them in a way where you go, that, that is so foreign to what I'm seeing. How you treat your wife, how you talk to your kids, the, the, the schedule that you have, the way that you talk is so different. I remember talking to one person, and, and this is a couple weeks back, and, 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 and they, they felt, the, and this is right because it would be scripture they had felt the Lord say, you need to clean up your, your language, you need to clean up your mouth. You use profanity, you need to cut out using profanity. It's wisdom, it's biblical wisdom, right? He said, that is the number one thing that most people at my workplace ask. Hey, you don't use the same language I use, why? Well, that's an opportunity to share the testimony and going, you know, the Lord called me to this. My Savior asked this of me and so I obeyed him because he knows what's best, right? Like, so it, something like that is a way of giving a compelling testimony. So h- how will our church do this? Well, it begins where I began. In prayer, in asking God, in pleading on God to save and to move in and through the Park Church so that we might see more people than we ever have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And for us, we live a compelling testimony with our lives and with our lips of the goodness of his grace and his mercy. It's both and. And if you're honest and you really think about it, some of you now, seriously, some of you, you were past a track or somebody came up to you and was like, do you know Jesus here, the seven spiritual, there's nothing wrong with that. And you put your faith and trust in Jesus. But I would guess the majority of people in here who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the way in which you were saved is this way. Somebody was praying for you, calling upon you by name. That somebody around you lived a compelling witness to the testimony of God's grace and mercy around you that caused you to be curious and the gospel was literally verbally shared with you. The good news of Jesus Christ was shared with you and you put your faith and trust and Jesus saved you. Think of it. That's how how I was saved. That's how I came to faith in Jesus Christ was through that. And that's what Paul is laying out here in Colossians for the church. Not just back then but for us as well. And so when you uh, walked in, I hope uh, most of you received um, these prayer cards. Um, now we're, we're going to have these available forever here, m- moving forward. But I want to take the time and space right now to begin to fill these out. For us to be, in, maybe you don't have a pen, or whatever. But like, let's do this together. For those who don't know Christ, who maybe you have lost, just that endurance that you want to just keep praying for that you want to you want to keep calling on God to save and to move listen some of you have experienced the joy even recently of those people who you've prayed for for 20 years putting their faith and trust in Jesus and the glorious beauty of what has happened now they're being baptized like there is no greater joy in the life of a church than celebrating salvation amen that's why baptism Sunday is such a party here because we get to go outside on the square and just celebrate the great grace of Jesus Christ and give testimony to it. Amen? Church, I long for more of that here at the parks. I long for more of that in my individual life, to live and be that compelling witness so the world might know the saving grace of Jesus. And so let's just take a moment and maybe for some of you, it's writing down. Maybe it's just praying and spending time with the Lord before we take communion together. I've given us a little extra time to do this because I want us to respond. So let's just, let's just take a moment, not rush through this. Ask the Lord. Lord, put people in my mind and in my path. And if you go, Kyle, I can't think of anyone. That's a problem. Pray that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes. Every moment is holy and dripping with God's presence. When you read the Gospels, um, and you look at Jesus as the embodiment of wisdom, God's wisdom manifest. And you think about how he pursued those who didn't, who didn't know God, who didn't love God. One of the primary ways, because some of you are still going, okay, I, I, I wanna be wis- wise, I wanna be gracious, I wanna be wis- winsome in my speech. Well, we often find Jesus in reaching those who are far off is that he invited them to have a meal with him, or he went to them and sat down at their table and had a meal right where they were. This radical hospitality, this radical kindness that he not only <clears throat> exhibited in his life, but he then calls his disciples to have and to carry as he invites us to another table, the table of communion, And this table is a table of invitation, like Jesus with those who are far off. That was a table of invitation. Him extending himself to them, whether they were tax collectors or alcoholics or the prideful and religious. Him extending himself, the way, the truth, the life, what we just sang about to each and every person. And this morning... Like we do every morning, every Sunday morning, we gather around the table of communion as disciples. But for those of you who have not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, this is still a table of invitation, amen? Jesus this morning saying to you into your heart, I love you, I see you, I gave my life for you so that you might know freedom and joy in real life. And so this morning when we're talking about a compelling testimony, I pray that even this gathering has been a compelling testimony to you that this isn't about religious performance. This isn't about you having better behavior or cleaning it up. This is about the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that is available for all, available for you. And he's calling you into that saving relationship with himself this morning so much so that he would place you here in downtown McKinney in the impact building to hear a message about his grace and his love for you. And so we're praying that you would receive this invitation of Jesus, an invitation of himself, not an invitation to join a club, not an invitation to, hey, knock these first things out, but an invitation to receive him in relationship, in his wholeness, so that you might be made whole. And our pastors and our elders at the end of service, we're gonna gather down here. And if that's you, we want to talk with you. We wanna pray with you. We wanna explain to you who Jesus is and his beautiful grace, the good news, what we call the gospel. And for the rest of us, I want you to stand, I invite you to stand with me as we prepare to take these elements of communion. Our hosts, if you need them, you can lift your hand. Our hosts have extra down here. They'd be happy to get to you. The communion is a meal for believers, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, whether it was this morning or like I said in my opening prayer 70 years ago, this meal is for you. And on the night Jesus was betrayed after giving thanks, he took bread and broke it, and he told his disciples as he would tell us this morning, this is my body broken for you. Let's partake. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup, and he told his disciples, this cup represents my blood, the new covenant. This is how you're saved, essentially is what he's saying, is through faith and trust that my sacrifice for you was enough to cover everything. That his perfect life, his innocent death, and his victorious resurrection, now by faith is applied to you. That's the new covenant. And so we take the cup of our salvation together. And the only fitting response after communion is what? Worship and thanksgiving. Let's give thanks to our God. Father, I thank you that you gave your son to live the life I could not live, to die the death I deserved. And Lord, I thank you for the victory that came through his resurrection, that that resurrection life is now applied to us, his community. And so, Lord, I pray for us as a church I pray that we would not hear this message. We would, we would not just be intellectually stirred, but Lord, this would stir our faith to live compelling lives as testimonies of the beauty and grace of your son that has changed us. Lord God, so send us out, I pray, as a community. Lord, I'm praying that we would see the harvest come like never before. Those who are lost, those who are far from you, God, and running. The the hardest cases in our mind, Lord, you're already working on and stirring their hearts. So, Lord, however we can participate, let us recognize and join in your work that you're already doing so that you might be glorified. So, Father, I pray for the Parks Church. I pray for a boldness. I pray for an availability. I pray for, God, just a sensitivity like never before to those around us. Lord, I love you. I thank you for this church. I thank you how it it sharpens each other. It sharpens us all in our pursuit of you. Lord, I pray even in this gathering that there might be faith being stirred, that those would trust you for the first time and actually step out in faith and have a conversation with us or someone. Lord, I love you. Again, we thank you for this gathering. May we use it as we go this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.